Hello and welcome to episode 19 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gives us a reason to live and can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. DIY touring is unlike any other experience I've ever had. It is a very strange way to spend your time. I'm sure non-musical analogs to the touring experience exist. I think anyone who's ever played professional sports, been in a sorority or a fraternity or a cult, or any other situation in which people are thrown together in close quarters by some mix of circumstance and common interest, will naturally experience things that will create bonds and lend themselves to collective decision-making and coordinated movements. Such people, especially those that exist in these group structures for a long time, can also become highly specialized individuals, maybe even to a fault. For instance, a man or woman who has spent their career in the military will often have trouble relating to the small talk, as well as the habits, of civilian strangers. They become accustomed to a certain way of life. In the case of the military vet, they get used to a certain amount of discipline and structure. More generally, they become accustomed to relying on in-group lingo and ways of describing things. Their routines, habits, and manner of speaking become part of a closed loop that can seem unrelatable and impenetrable to outsiders. Members of these in-groups share in common a very similar brand of tribalism, a collective pack mentality that can make a person feel like part of something greater than themselves. When a plumber meets another plumber, they're comfortable speaking in the jargon of basin wrenches, drain clogs, and leech lines, the same way touring musicians speak of backlines, buyouts, and line checks. Of course, you can find this sort of trade language in almost any profession, but when your trade or profession is also your passion, maybe even your obsession, you tend to liken everything in your life to your own necessarily narrow worldview. My wife Leah is an English professor, and one time I tagged along with her to a big academic conference, and I couldn't stop pointing out how much the whole thing felt like CMJ or South by Southwest. There were stars, hangers-on, fans, drinks, even a merch table. I began touring in 1997, and I've toured almost every year since, with the exception of 2020, the year of the pandemic. Some of those years I toured only once or twice, and for brief periods. A brief period would be any tour lasting fewer than, say, 10 days. On other years, I spent a good third of my year either on tour or in a recording studio, and I've done marathon tours of as many as 53 straight days. I've toured with many different people, as various musicians drifted in and out of my own band, or as an auxiliary member of other bands. I've formed many close relationships this way. Being on tour with a group of people is like concentrating five years of friendship into just a few weeks. There are people in minimum security prisons who have more personal space and more privacy than most bands do on tour. Together, the group experiences almost everything in tandem, from daily activities like eating and sleeping to earth-shaking, once-in-a-lifetime episodes, incidents, and situations. I feel more intimately acquainted with people I toured with for two weeks ten years ago than I do with many of my family members, high school or college friends, and co-workers. There are former touring mates of mine I consider close friends, even though I haven't seen them in the flesh in 15 years. On tour, you bond or you break. Sometimes you bond in strange ways. In the van on a recent tour with my band 111 Heavy, 
We conceptualized a food-themed Grateful Dead novelty cover band, which we dubbed Touch of Gravy. We spent hours coming up with different song titles. I wish I'd written them all down. I do remember Scarlet Bologna, Friend of the Deviled Eggs, SpaghettiO, Eat It On Down the Line, and Gertha. You get the idea. After it seemed like we exhausted every possible pun on Grateful Dead song titles, there was a long silence, and it seemed for a while that the joke had finally run its course. Then, suddenly, our drummer Jake broke the silence by quietly uttering one word. <laughs> meal. You've never seen five delirious and sleep-deprived people laugh so hard. And now I can't hear the Grateful Dead song deal without recalling this moment. Now, we soon got a necessary dose of reality when someone, probably me, pointed out that if we had actually started such a band and toured not as 111 Heavy, but Touch of Gravy, we'd be very likely making a lot more money and have a lot more fans. Hmm. Captain Bumout, at your service. Anyway, I breathlessly described this theoretical band to my wife on the phone. Now, Leah loves the Grateful Dead, uh, has herself been on tour several times, knows all the guys in my band, and has a highly developed sense of humor. She's the key demographic for Touch of Gravy, right? She should have been cracking up, or at least mildly amused, right? Nope. It wasn't that she didn't get the joke. I mean, if you like the dead and you know their song titles, there's not much to get. But she didn't find Touch of Gravy funny at all. Now come to think of it, did you find it funny? I mean, just now, when I told you the story. It's okay if you didn't, because it's a perfect seg to the axiom I am about to relay. Ready? Tour jokes do not translate back home. I will repeat this, because it's important. Tour jokes do not translate back home. It doesn't matter how funny the jokes are. In all my years of touring, I've seen no deviation here. Those recurring themes and little comedic bits that will inevitably be driven into the ground and told and retold long after they're no longer actually funny, do provide for the bubble creatures a great source of comfort, of camaraderie, and shared experience. But they are always best left in the van. While I am tour-splaining, here's another bit of advice I wish someone had given me long ago. Beware of adding members to your traveling party mid-tour, especially if the people you are adding won't be serving a particular function like performing on stage with the band or working the merch table. Now this can work, I've seen it work, but more often than not, adding a person to the van in the middle of a tour radically alters the group dynamic, and this can create problems. Boyfriends, girlfriends, and spouses added midway through a trek can be especially difficult, and I know that sounds shitty, but it's true. In the presence of such people, you revert to your home self, which may very well be a good self, but it's not your tour self. Your tour self is an entirely different self. Now, to be very clear, this is not some dumb what happens on the road stays on the road bullshit. I'm not talking about anything illicit. I'm just talking about the fragility of the bubble and how adding a variable to the experiment can have unintended negative effects. Now, some of these effects can be potentially dramatic, such as the formation of new alliances, coups, and mutinies. Some are more mundane, though no less challenging, like the notion of having to consider another person sharing the already lean offerings of free food and overnight accommodation. It's a lot easier to find couches for three than for seven. On the plus side, 
adding some fresh blood can do wonders for mitigating the inevitable tedium that begins to set in once the novelty of your Jack Kerouac fantasy has worn off. In my experience, the beginning of tour feels like some cross between Vanishing Point, Smokey and the Bandit, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. But somewhere near the middle, it begins to feel like a cross between The Brown Bunny, Tulane Blacktop, and Waiting for Godot. If you're on the road for more than a week, the boredom and tedium are inevitable. I once heard an old musician's adage that went something like this. The music is free. You pay us to travel. There's another old cliche that goes something like this. You spend all this time driving and traveling and eating bad food and dealing with bullshit, and you do it for that one precious hour on stage, man, etc., etc. I actually don't relate to this at all. Sure, that hour on stage can be really good and affirming and worth all the trials and tribulations and sleep deprivation and speeding tickets, but it can also not be that. Now, me, I love hotels, even shitty hotels. I love traveling, and I love truck stops and diners and record stores and meeting strangers. I could probably go on living if you told me I could never again play another show, but not if you told me I'd never again cross a state line. That said, even I get bored. So after the last 20 years or so, I've devised many games and diversions for the tour van to break the monotony. You remember when you were a kid and maybe your parents took you on a trip to see a relative or to Disneyland or whatever, and you'd kill time by playing games involving license plates and stuff? Well, this is the same idea. Some of these games originated at the various record stores where I've worked, when during downtime, employees would construct elaborate polls and trivia questions that soon became running gags and memes. I'll get to some of those later. But one of my favorite touring diversions was to read out loud, as a group, transcripts of famous criminal trials as if they were plays. This started many years ago when someone in my band just happened to pick up a paperback copy of a book about the Jean Benet Ramsey trial at some Goodwill or something. We killed time by passing the book around, reading it as if we were performing it on stage for an audience. I found that this was also a good way to conduct social experiments. For instance, I remember our feelings about the relative complicity of Jean Benet's parents in the crime would vary depending on what kind of accent we gave them. Helter Skelter was another good one to read, and it works with oral histories, too. When we got our hands on a copy of the Motley Crue oral history, The Dirt, I proudly played the role of Nikki Six. Another fun recreational bubble life pastime is a game I call Describe Any Band in a Way That Makes Them Sound Terrible. This is an amusing icebreaker that originated at the record store CD Central in Lexington, Kentucky, with my good pal Andy. The more beloved and canonical a band, the more fun it is to try to make them sound awful by describing them in the least appealing ways that also happen to be true. Uh, Here's an example. Uh, Let's do the Beastie Boys. Okay, so there are these three rich white kids, right? And they rap, but sometimes they have, like, guitars and stuff. Are they especially talented MCs, you ask? Mmm, not so much. In fact, as rappers, they're pretty lousy and two of them have really high, squeaky, obnoxious voices. Oh, the guitars? Oh, no, they're not good. Uh, Except when the guy from Slayer plays. Oh, I didn't tell you that? Yeah, the guy from Slayer plays on it. Yeah, it's rap. Uh, subject matter? They rap about partying and getting girls to do the dishes. It's good. You'll love it. I swear. That's the gist of the game. 
You can try this with Led Zeppelin or Nirvana or Parliament Funkadelic. The takeaway is that you can make almost any music sound objectively terrible. Anyway, luckily, the tedium of touring doesn't set in right away. I've observed a pattern over the years that goes something like this. Days 1 through 5, Phase 1, are full of excitement. Everyone takes turn DJing and playing the other members of the platoon their favorite records. You stop at Guitar Center a lot, because it's during this period, after you have a few shows under your belt, that you realize your cables are not working properly, or you have a pedal that needs soldering. There's talk of set lists and old friends you're looking forward to seeing in various cities. People are quicker to spend money on frivolous things like records, souvenirs, drugs, and appetizers and desserts. There are usually a few stops at Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and Starbucks. Phase 2 spans days 5 through 10. Now, by day 5 or 6, everyone's told most of their best stories and jokes, and everyone's getting a little tired of DJing. You're still having fun, though, and morale is high. The next five days are a sort of settling in after the initial incubation period. It is during this second period that the cable that plugs the iPod or phone into the auxiliary port of the van begins emitting the distinct, annoying, crackling sound that will last for the remainder of the trip. This is when you start opting for stand-up comedy in the van over music, to give your ears a break. Stand-up comedy on the road is great. It's like picking up a really entertaining hitchhiker for an hour. And no one talks over stand-up comedy for some reason. Nowadays, this is also when people would start sharing their favorite podcasts. Now, by phase two, you have mastered the game of Tetris that is loading and reloading the van each night. You know the thing you like to order at IHOP, the Waffle House, or the Cracker Barrel. And the predictability and reliability of this meal becomes an unlikely source of comfort. You feel a little ashamed and remorseful about this, but... You're totally going to treat yourself to a gym membership as soon as you get home, and so it's no big deal. The Starbucks trips are fewer now in Phase 2, but you begin to develop a taste for gas station coffee. On some days, stopping for gas is the most fun and the most exercise you will have all day. And because of this, during Phase 2, the inevitable mini-mart dawdlers in your party are cut some slack for holding things up. After all, next time it could be you stuck in the long line at Subway before you've even had the chance to hopefully use the bathroom and check in with your significant other without having to shout over Supreme Clientele or Tego Mego. Discarded candy wrappers, as well as some of the candy itself, have begun to litter the floorboards. A lot of trail mix, too. There are fewer stops at Guitar Center for drumsticks and adapters and guitar strings, but more trips to Walgreens for Dayquil, Claritin, and emergency packets. You stand before a rack of Dr. Scholl's medicated footpads, staring longingly. You hope it's your night to get one of the two or three beds in whatever hellhole you happen to be staying that night. By now, everyone has seen you in your underwear. This is phase two. Phase three begins around day ten. This is when things begin to get real. There will have been a few banned arguments at this point, as well as some hellacious drives in bad weather. You run out of clean clothes and start neglecting basic hygiene. You become intimately familiar with the eating, sleeping, snoring, and bathroom habits of everyone in the van, and none of these habits have done a thing to endear you to these people, your cellmates in the bubble. You've been seen in your underwear a few more times, only now you've stopped giving a shit. You have forgotten what it feels like to sleep in your own bed and realize how you've always taken for granted the ability to walk over to your refrigerator or pantry 
and just pull out a snack. Oh, and that meal you like at IHOP, Waffle House, or the Cracker Barrel? You no longer feel guilty or remorseful about looking forward to it. Bring the Uncle Herschel's Country Boy Breakfast Sampler the fuck on, you say. If you've bought too many records, as I always do, this is around the time you start looking for boxes and post offices so you can ship them home, lest they be trampled or melted in the van. By now you have at least two parking or speeding tickets you will never pay. You are reminded, for approximately the 11 billionth time, that despite it always seeming like a good and practical idea at the outset of a tour to travel with a cooler for snacks, the fact is that fruit, hummus, and odwalla don't keep no matter what you do, and constantly dumping the foul, tepid cooler water has become both a major chore and an appetite suppressant. Those lollygaggers at the gas station, once so easily forgiven their trespasses, now they're your secret enemies, and you daydream of a sort of Lord of the Flies scenario in which you are the one brandishing the spear. And then, lift off. You begin to feel a little punch drunk, and this period lasts for the rest of the tour, or at least until the final four or five shows, when home is in plain sight, and you begin to start thinking about all the stuff waiting for you back home, good and bad. Returning to your family, maybe your job, your credit card bill, your sick pet. For a week or two after a tour, you will have tour dreams. You will wake up momentarily worried you have missed soundcheck, or that you have left your wallet on top of the ATM at the Cicero, Indiana Shell Station, where the credit card readers were down, and you just had to try the local beef jerky. The worst part is waking up not knowing where you are, not recognizing your bed, and the weird aches in your body, and the craving for junk food. Finding it difficult to adjust to civilian life, you continue to drink as if you were still on tour. Despite your resolutions, there is no gym membership in your future. My friend William Tyler, with whom I've toured on several occasions, once summed up the ultimate lesson of touring really well. Touring, he said, teaches you the difference between what you want and what you need. If you are a person who says they need to have their Chemex coffee at the same time every morning, or needs to shower at least once a day, or needs to get at least six hours of sleep every night, you will not survive on tour. Of course, people who say they need these things also find sometimes that they don't actually need those things. They merely want them, and they can actually do without them if necessary. This can be a liberating discovery. I'll confess my own Achilles heel here. If I'm touring during the summer, I need air conditioning if I am to sleep. I think on the whole I'm pretty unflappable and tough on tour, and I think at this point I can handle almost anything, but I positively cannot sleep if the temperature in the room is too high. This has made touring Europe in the summer very arduous at times, because for whatever reason, Europeans have been very slow to embrace the sweet, potent narcotic of Freon. Few things bring out the tour diva in me like spending a long night awake on the floor of a squat, dripping with sweat, waiting for daylight. Nothing makes me feel more American than my love of air conditioning, except maybe my love of hotels. Give me a Motel 6 all to myself on tour, with the air conditioner on full blast, and a Chinese food restaurant that delivers, and oh, I am a very happy man. In summation, tour is where bands live or die. If a band can get across the country in a van and still be a band on the other side, that band is going to make it. A long van trip across flyover country will destroy a group quicker than any drug problem, 
love triangle, or incompetent booking agent. The thing is, it's always better to play than not play, because days off are death. Even if you all cram into a single red roof inn, and eat nothing but Taco Bell for every meal, you're still in the red at the end of a day's drive, if you don't play. So, you perform at pizzerias, and living rooms, and maybe even a coffee shop or two. Because just because it's Tuesday night, and you're in the middle of Wyoming, you still need to play somewhere, anywhere, if you can. Needless to say, this is a powder keg. Long drives, lousy shows, low turnouts, overheating vans, low morale, hangriness that takes the form of temporary insanity. It can be a bear, but it can also be some of the most fun you'll ever have. Thank you for listening. Over the next few episodes, I'll tell you some more tour stories. Also on the next episode, we will be revealing the results of our first poll question, which if you missed it was... What is the worst or most inaccurate depiction of rock and roll in a movie or TV show? And stay tuned for a new poll question at the end of the next episode. And now a quick rundown of some things I've been listening to this week. Uh, As far as new stuff, I'm really into this Mason Lindahl LP on Tompkins Square. The record's titled Kissing Rosie in the Rain. It's a great title. It's really beautiful playing with flamenco touches and pensive Wyndham Hill vibes, killer production, really good tunes. I don't really know a thing about this guy, but he's terrific. Um, And if, like me, you are currently battling sub-zero temperatures, this is the winter soundtrack you need. Uh, The CS and Cream album Snoopy from last year is something I only got into earlier this year, and I've been playing that a lot. I actually wasn't nuts about their first few 12 inches, but this one's really different. Someone on Discogs named Jimmy James, not me, I swear, called it Balearic Coil in Dub, and I thought, surely that's trolling. I mean, that sounds like something directly marketed to my brain, but after a few spins, God help me, that's pretty close. Excellent record. I'm still jamming a lot of the stuff on the International Anthem label, especially two records I think have been quite overlooked even among the other great records on that label. Chicago Waves by Carlos Nino and Miguel Atwood Ferguson, which was recorded live, is a totally improvised meditative tone poem. I like it more every time I hear it and Achille Navarro and Chester Holmes' Heritage of the Invisible 2 manages the feat of blending the sort of abstract, playful, anything-goes approach of art ensemble with deep and alien electronics and tasty South American touches that belie the duo's Panamanian roots. Now, if these recommendations get tiresome or tedious, please let me know, because I don't want to spend too much time on these, but since I've been avoiding social media, I don't really have an outlet to rep for things I've been digging in. Since this is, after all, a podcast about music, I figured this is a good platform to briefly share some things in the hopes that you'll enjoy them as much as I do. However, if it gets too listy or whatever, we're just going to dispense with it, so we'll see how it goes. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tiers begin at only $5 a month and give you access to exclusive home demos, regular newsletters, photos, discounts on Bandcamp and Discogs, and at least four digital mixes a year. For those of you who don't use Twitter and aren't patrons, I have set up a dedicated Toth Zone email account where you can reach me. It's thetothzone at outlook.com. That's all for now. Thanks for checking in. See you next time. Till then, this is The Toth Zone.